we'd like to welcome everyone this evening to our study of 2 Kings. And this just continues to be a really good uh, a really good book that we're studying here. Um, there's not only principles for our own lives, but there's drama that depicts our lives. And just thinking about these things, it sounds so true to life, because it is, but it sounds so true to our life, the many things that go on. Well, this evening, I would like to first talk about, um, <clears throat> many years ago, there was a, um, a Christian broadcast called The Gospel Hour, and I appreciated it. Well, I appreciated about 30 minutes of it, because The Gospel Hour was actually only a gospel half hour. Because the other half hour, it was a plea for money the entire time. And you would hear the comments of unbelievers and those things, and, and you get it. And so when I did go into the ministry, I've always held that. Uh, I never wanted to be seen as that. And so I, I very rarely talk about giving, except when it's in the text. And uh, that's really one of the reasons why I didn't want to be associated with that kind of reputation. And it seems like, you know, everybody has that. I, I also remember when I first became a Christian, uh, two missionaries, uh, wonderful ladies that, that were uh, on the mission field, actually worked uh, for Hudson Taylor's ministry, uh, China Inland Mission. And they handed me a biography of Hudson Taylor when I first became a Christian. And he was such a man of faith, and he had this motto, God's work done in God's way will not lack God's provisions. And I've always, I've always embraced that. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place at times for requests or even appeals, but I feel like you need to do them with fear and trembling. You need to make sure it's God's will and it needs to be appropriate. Well, Jehoash tonight actually does such a thing. And I really do think that there's a good balance of what he did. And what he did was to have the priests go out and get money so that they could finish repairing the temple, which Athaliah had destroyed much of it to get materials for the worship of Baal. So he does a pretty good job, but there is a couple of hiccups that we'll talk about this evening. And then if we have any time, it's, it's, a, it's a place that seems natural to me to talk about the giving of the Old Testament and the giving in the New Testament, the New Testament principles. Well, before we begin then, we're in chapter 12, verses 1 through 16, this is called the beginning of Jehoash's reign. And by the way, this chapter calls him Jehoash, whereas the beginning of chapter 11, he was just Joash. I guess when you're a king, the H is fitting for you, Jehoash. Anyway, it's his beginning. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word and the example of it. We pray, Father, that we not only see these examples, but examples that we should avoid. And then, Father, if there are good examples of the heart and 
devotion towards you, Father, we should embrace that. And even, Father, with the example of giving, uh, Lord, let us never be guilty of the gospel half hour because we spend an hour appealing for money. But, Father, let us be trusting you for our position, uh, uh, provisions and let us be trusting you, Lord, uh, in our own lives and our own giving between you and ourselves. So, Father, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we have this evening is we're going to talk about Jehoash's reign. And it's summarized in verses 1 through 3. Very interesting, kind of like we do our sermons. We give a, a summary of what we're going to say. Then we say it, and then we say what we said. That's a good way of doing a devotional or preaching and keeping your people focused on what the topic is. As we move on, we're only going to cover 16 verses, but the, the next section will be Jehoash's temple repairs. So part of the beginning of his reign is very, very good, and he is doing what he should do, uh, the the uh, preparation and the repair of God's temple so people can come and worship and Baal worship be rid. Well, before we do that, before we get to chapter 12, let's just talk a little bit about the review of chapter 11. You remember Athaliah, who was uh, Ahaziah's um, mother, and she he was killed, and she replaced him. And then Joash was hidden because now Athaliah went about killing the remainder of um, the, the royal children. But Jehoiada and his wife, uh, Jehoshaphat, they rescued him and hid him for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, if you remember, Jehoiada, the high priest, he established Jehoash as king. Athaliah heard about it, comes running into uh, the temple by herself, mistake, and they apprehended her and took her outside the house of the Lord where she was put to death. And then the remainder of the verses in chapter 11 were Jehoiada's revival and Jehoiada's establishment of the king. And so we see Jehoiada has a great influence on Jehoash. And that's what we're going to see here in just a moment. So now Jehoash has been reigning. We don't exactly know how long, but look at what it says in verse 1. It says that we know when he began his reign. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Now, I want to just stop for a second before we even start to go through this, but I do have uh, some pictures that I wanted to show you, a review of chapter 11. Here is a drawing or painting of Jehoiada as he is introducing little Jehoash. You see him there right underneath his arm. Uh, very interesting, the painter has Jehoash under 
Jehoiada's arm, meaning protection and guidance. And then you see to the left, very good rendition of Athaliah and her cruelty and wickedness, and she is apprehended. So we'll just zoom in. There is Jehoiada and Jehoash, and there is Athaliah there. So anyway, um, and then before we even begin, I just want to uh, talk about the chronology here. So we don't have much to say, but if you notice the kings of Judah, um, we had Ahaziah in 841, and he was just a king for a short time until he was killed. And then his mother, Athaliah, took over for seven years. And it was during those seven years that Jehoash was hidden. And then he comes to power in about 835. And he will reign for 40 years, which is amazing because Asa, he reigned for 41 years. So now we have this king who reigns almost as much as Asa. And the other thing we want to say, not only did he reign 40 years, but it says his mother's name was Zibia. Uh, the scriptures now reveal that his mother was a different mother than Athaliah. So in other words, we know that the king had children through Athaliah, but he also had children through other women. And here she's named uh, Zibiah, and she's from Beersheba. So uh, it, it kind of reveals all that. And, and we think that uh, Jehoshaphat would have uh, really been um, Ahaziah's stepsister. And uh, we see how this unfolds all together. Well, that's the beginning of Jehoash's uh, reign. Now let's look at the middle. Verse 2. Jehoash did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. So he gets the accommodation of that he did what is right in the sight of the Lord. And that is such a good accommodation. That's the accommodation that these kings needed. That's the accommodation that you would have imagined if they had a heart for the Lord, they wanted. By the way, that should be our heart's desire to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. Never mind the world. Never mind culture. When, when the... When the chips fall, we want to be doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And it says that Jehoash did that. But I want you to pay attention to the next phrase. The next phrase was, all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Meaning that as long as Jehoiada was alive, Jehoiada was his advisor, his spiritual leader, and had an influence on Jehoash's life. When Jehoiada dies, we're going to see a turning by Jehoash away from the Lord. And this is just a a terrible, terrible thing. Verse 3 gives us a little bit of an insight to that, but not all of it. Verse 3 is Jehoiada. Jehoash, I'll get it right, too many J's in the book of Kings. Jehoash's end. You get a little bit of insight here. It says, only 
the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And we see so many kings guilty of this. And I believe when Jehoiada is taken out of the picture, we're going to see sin become rampant. And the high places, as you remember, really were literally high places. High places on a hill or a mountain. And that's where people went to worship. And when Israel would conquer these places, they would then establish the worship of Yahweh there. Well, sometimes, not always, and these kings didn't always do that. So the people are still sacrificing and burning to these gods, these false gods. So there really, really needed to be a true revival, and Jehoash would not do that. What we also find from Second Chronicles and we'll look at this next week when we look at the last part of Jehoash's life. We're going to see that he committed other atrocities, including the killing of a prophet. And he became an apostate. So it's very interesting, the wording of the author, where it says, He did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. In other words, when that stopped, he stopped following the Lord. And and I want to go on. There's a lot to cover, but here's a good place for an application. And the application is, you know, one, when we disciple people or we're spiritual leaders, we not only get them to conform to the scriptures and principles of God now, but we prepare them for when they're on their own or for when we are not there. And I think as far as the person themselves, I I, I think just like Jehoash made a commitment while Jehoiada was alive to follow the Lord, there needs to be that step and say, one day he's not going to be here, but I make a commitment to follow the Lord then. If you wait till it happens, until the difficulties of life hit you, and then you make your choice, it may be very difficult to make the right choice, but you must make that commitment beforehand. And there's a lot of scenarios like that. One spouse could die. The other spouse needs to go on with the Lord. We think mostly of children, though, and and teenagers. But even as us as believers, uh, what happens if we get a moment of freedom? Do we do what's right in the sight of the Lord? We have to make a commitment ahead of time to do so. Well, here's the good part about Jehoash. He is now going to be very concerned about the temple and the temple repairs. And this is good. We know that. I mean, we remember David. We remember Solomon. Uh, It was Solomon's... Um, duty and promise to David that he would build the temple. And there always has to be this regard for the temple because that's where they worship. One of the major problems of the northern kingdom is they don't worship at the temple where God's Shekinah presence is there. And they made golden calves in the northern kingdom And that's how they worship. So they already started out bad. And of course, they were steeped in idolatry. So Jehoash is doing this. And I would think 
his motivation is right. I, we would probably surmise that Jehoiada probably spoke to him about this, trained him not only as a king, but also uh, in the law. Um, we, we see Jehoash mention the law and some of its aspects here, and so he was taught about this, and it seems as if he had the impetus to want to carry this out. Having said that, that's another exhortation for us to be careful. Your heart could be right in the beginning. You know, we shouldn't say, well, if his end was, was terrible, that means the beginning was terrible and he was just faking. Not necessarily. But that commitment to remain faithful obviously wasn't there. And we see this... Uh, this idea that, that it really is a, an independent decision behind Jehoash. So let me give away a spoiler alert here. Part of the problem is he gives the command for a collection to be taken so that this can be done. Later on, it wasn't done. And so he does it again. He makes this appeal again and even changes the plan to bring this about. So this was in his heart and it was an independent decision. And you know what? We already know that because it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, let's read verse 4 and verse 5 to kind of get the context and we'll work our way through. It says, Then Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the sacred things which is brought into the house of the Lord, in current money, both the money of each man's assessment and all the money which any man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it for themselves, each from his acquaintance, and they shall repair the damages of the house wherever any damage may be found. So he's appointing the priest to do this. And by the way, it's not as if he's stealing from the Lord's treasury to do something illegal with it. He is doing exactly what one of the purposes are of these offerings. And I want to just talk about them. There, He mentions three things three types of giving here. And I, I will say that the language, no matter what version you're looking at, is a little hard to assess exactly what he's saying. Um, and so we, we put it together. We kind of looked at different uh, translations of what they had to say in commentaries. And so I want to try to put this all together to, for you. But first of all, in verse 4, there are three uh, offerings, monetary offerings and or gold and silver offerings, okay? So in other words, there, there's going to be an expense to, to repair the temple, and this is what these are for. So first he says, all the money of the sacred things which is brought into the house of the Lord. That is the first one. And that actually can be called a census tax. And you say, well, wait a second. I don't like when people go around my house taking a census. I don't like when we're taxed. Um, what does that have to do with this? Well, under 
the idea and the principles of the Old Testament, any kind of tax in Israel was put towards spiritual things, was put towards the house of the Lord, was put where it's supposed to be. And so uh, one writes, this was half a shekel assessed from every male 20 years old and above whenever a census was taken. And this is from Exodus chapter uh, 30, verses 11 through 16. And I'm not going to read it, but it does talk about when you take a census, this is what you are to do. And a half a shekel is to be taken as a contribution to the Lord. Now, we don't really see this necessarily in churches today, necessarily. So I'm thinking of a Bible church. I'm thinking of our church. So we don't take a census and we don't say, well, we have so many people and we should have so much money. We just trust that to the Lord. And in fact, there's a few of us that we have the privilege of not even being involved and knowing who gives what, because I, I don't want to ever think that way. But it, it, they were doing it right, but we, we don't do it that way. However, we know of certain denominations and churches that do do it that way. And they tell you how much money according to your income that you have to give or you could be excommunicated from the church. Um, there are those who maybe don't take it that far, but certainly give that emotional appeal. And, and this is wrong. And, and by the way, I don't see Jehoash doing this appeal in an unbiblical way. So that was the first one, the census tag. Now, again, we're not talking about when Rome took a census. You know, the Jewish people, they did take a census, and of course there was a tax, and that was fine. But when another country, another nation, went to tax the Jews, that's war. Because that's, that's, that's what they were always trying to get out from under was the... Uh, the reign of these other nations. So we're still good. And then notice the next phrase is in um, current money, and again, money could be silver and gold. It says both. The first one, the money of each man's assessment. So does that mean you have to pay, you know, what you're worth in salt? Uh, no, no. This This also is according to Leviticus. This is a payment of a personal vow as a gift to the Lord in his service. Okay, so you can see that all of these have a, have a religious um, uh, 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 label to them. And so this is why Jehoash was able to use these things. Um, if you go to Leviticus 27, you don't have to turn there, but it will talk about the evaluation of each person and their age. And it's kind of cool because uh, it shows that um, those who are older don't have to pay as much. So I like that. I like that idea. Um, so they always see this fairness. In, but the whole idea of this, this was to be paid to the Lord. Um, or some other dedication. You remember when Hannah prayed to the Lord for a son? She made this kind of vow and said, I will dedicate my son 
to you, to the Lord, and to ministry. So that's what she did. So that, that's this kind of um, personal vow. Uh, only now we're talking about money. And the third one is voluntary offerings. So again, one is kind of mandatory. The other one is mandatory if you make it mandatory. This one is voluntary offerings. And obviously that's exactly what it is. You could give if you wanted to. If you had a heart for the Lord, if you wanted to give towards the work of the Lord, you could. We see that in Leviticus chapter 22 where it talks about if, if anyone makes, wants to make a free will offering. Um, so sometimes you see the churches that are called free will. Um, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean this is a group of people who just feel really free and generous to give. It has to do with Calvinism and Arminianism. That's the emphasis there in the free will churches. But as I'm going through this and I'm thinking of the voluntary offerings, you know, I'm thinking of the New Testament, which is really the heart of it. It ought to be giving ought to be of the heart. It's not under the law. We'll talk about that. It's of the heart, spiritual purposes. And even in the Old Testament, that was there. So even though they had to give taxes and those kinds of things, it was still of the heart. They were to do it of the heart, and they had a free will offering. Um, one of the things I also want to say is this is on top of the tithe. The tithe isn't even involved in this. So we have in the Old Testament the tithe. And so if we have enough time at the end, I want to talk about the tithe just to put it together in a New Testament um, uh, perception. All right. Number five, verse five, we see that he puts the priests in charge of that, both of the collecting from people and also of the work. Now, the language there doesn't really tell us if it meant that the priests themselves were to do the labor or if the priests were to get together the labor, but they were to collect the money. And, and I don't see anything wrong with that. You would have thought that the priests would have also had that as a very top priority. Well, look at verse 6. But it came about that in the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests had not repaired the damages of the house. Now, this is the 23rd year. He began when he was seven years old. So he's about 30 years old. Now, we don't know what year he actually made this uh, instruction to say, go ahead and do this. But you get the idea that it's gone on for long enough. You know, that's the, when you go into a room and you see a candle burning and you measure the candle, how much it burns per hour. Well, that's fine, but you don't know how long the candle was in the beginning. That's not going to tell you when the beginning was. Well, that's what we have here. But you do get the idea when we see his little come-to-Jesus meeting with the priests. And we'll look at that in just a moment. So he's 30 years old now, and he's coming to his own. Uh, before it was old, he was old enough, I don't know, Maybe in his 20s, 
maybe mid-20s, where he made an independent decision. This is what we're going to do. I am the king, as you know. And, and it had got done, and now he's going to do something about it. Now, the question is, why didn't the priest do it? Well, there are a couple commentaries that, that throw their hat into the ring of the view. Some believe that they were self-centered, believe that maybe they were dishonest, maybe they were keeping money. But the text doesn't say that. In fact, the text doesn't say why they didn't finish it at all. Um, I was reading a commentary by Dale Ralph Davis, a book given to me by Lou, and he said, look, the priests were probably more slow than they were slick, all right? Probably didn't have anything to do with deceit, but they just didn't get around to it. Now, we don't know how many years they didn't get around to it, but what, what are the possibilities of why they didn't get around to it? And I'm not making excuses for them. But even John MacArthur says, perhaps the revenue from these sources that they were asking, and you get the idea, it's personal acquaintances. So, you know, hey, you're my buddy, and we go hunting together. So how'd you like to make a large donation to Grace Bible Church? <laughs> Probably not going to work. But so probably the revenue from these sources was inadequate to support the priests and the Levites and also pay for the temple repairs. That's one possibility. We don't know. It doesn't say. I was thinking, or perhaps they had been occupied with reestablishing the worship of Yahweh after Athaliah's years of Baal worship. I mean, she... She destroyed a little bit of the temple for Baal worship. For seven years, Baal worship was promoted. It was promoted before that and even before that. So it, it, it was really ingrained in, in the Jewish society. So maybe the priests were doing what they ought to do. Well, we're going to get that temple fixed. We're going we're gonna to get that building fixed. But we are going to try to get people's hearts. I don't know. That's probably the best case scenario. Um, these reasons could be why Jehoiada, the high priest, why he doesn't put more pressure on them. You know, maybe you would think he would have said, all right, hey, um, guys, why, why don't you come to my office and, oh, have some donuts and here's some coffee. And by the way, why aren't you getting the temple repaired? We don't, we don't necessarily know that Jehoiada was putting pressure. And then, you know, I'm glad Jehoash is doing this. But what about the time span? Why is this seemingly the first time he's saying, all right, enough is enough? I mean, you would have, you would have thought he would have said something. Uh, you know, you, 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 want to always, you want to always say something good about the person before you make any kind of uh, criticism. So it's kind of interesting because sometimes you'll talk to somebody and the first thing they'll do is they'll, they will say something nice about you. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, here it comes. And that's not always the case. But the, 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 the idea is, whatever the reason is, this 30-year-old king was going to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and it was time to dispense with plan A and now do plan B. 
Uh, I like that word, plan A, plan B, except when I use it, I'm usually on plan D, plan E. You know, I take it out to the nth degree. Well, let's look at verses 7 and 8. Jehoash is going to remove the responsibility of the priests. Now, some commentaries say, well, you see, this is, this is a bad thing that they did, and he's removing some responsibility, and that could be. But it could be, it could be this. Maybe Jehoash realizes, you know what, that plan may not have been the best plan. And that's something you do have to think about when you're involved in the church. You have good ideas good idea, good motives, but sometimes it doesn't work. And, you know, when it doesn't work, we come up with all kinds of ideas why it doesn't work. And yet, I'm not sure that we really come up with the true answer. But at times, you have to shift your plans or try it another way. And that's exactly what Jehoash does. Look at verse 7. Then King Jehoash called for Jehoiada, the priest, and for the other priests, and said to them, Why do you not repair the damages of the house? Now, we don't know what their reply is. Maybe it was one of the reasons we we just gave. He says, Now, therefore, take no more money from your acquaintances, but pay it for the the damages of the house. Well, as, as we're thinking of this, you know, it's hard to say. That it seems as if they were taking some money from the acquaintances, um, people they knew. And so perhaps it wasn't enough to pay for the damages of the house. But he says, take no more money, but pay it for the damages of the house. Well, if you're not taking any more money, how can you pay it for the damages of the house of the Lord. So let me just read this. First, they were no longer responsible for collecting and personally holding the money. So that's the first thing that was going to go. Maybe they were overtaxed. Uh, (laughs) No pun intended. Maybe they were too busy. Uh, They were to give whatever resources they had from collecting it towards repairing the temple. And I do like the way the ESV translates it. It says, now therefore take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. And then when we look at verse 8, there's going to be another little nuance. It seems as if part of the responsibility was themselves to repair the house of the Lord. Look at verse 8. So the priests agreed that they would take no more money from the people nor repair the damages of the house. And again, I don't think it's that they were dishonest. This does seem like a meeting and there were results. But that last phrase, nor repair the damages of the house, it almost sounds like they were included. And the ESV says that they should not repair the house. And and maybe it was that they were too busy. Well, whatever where he is now instituting plan B. And plan B is a collection box. That's what it's going to be. And right away, it made me think of a church I had um, in 
Texas Faith Bible Church, and they, they took no collection. And I'm not sure when I realized that. I, I, I'm talking about when I was candidating, they never said, oh, by the way, we don't take collection. We have a faith box in the back. I don't think they ever said that to me. Not that it really mattered. But then when I got there, I, I realized, oh, we're going to take collection? No, we have a faith box in the back. Well, my first thought was, okay, but if that doesn't work, we're going to go back to passing the plate. Well, you know what? The Lord is in control. And it was obviously the Lord reminding people, um, you know, to give their offerings to the Lord. Nobody had to tell them. And it was put in that faith box. And you come away learning saying, wow, this is, you know, the Lord is faithful. Well, the same thing happened to us here at Grace. You know, before COVID, um, when we could touch things without wearing rubber gloves, we were passing the plate. And then people were putting their dirty money in the plate. And I don't mean dirty because they got it from illegal means. I mean dirty because it, so many people touch it. Well, we, we left that go just to kind of accommodate. We put a faith box in. And again, the Lord just was faithful. And people put it in there. People ask us, well, where, where's the collection box to put the money in? And um, it, it's a wonderful thing. And that's kind of, in a sense, what they were doing. So am I against taking a collection? No, I'm not saying that's unbiblical. But I do kind of see here that there is a little bit of biblical uh, support if you put a faith box and, and you are encouraged to see the Lord work. Well, here in uh, verse 9, it says, But Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. By the way, at this moment, I'm thinking of Tim Alvin and I'm thinking of Peter because they took our, our box and they had to bore a bigger hole in it. And you know, so I'm just thinking of my word, you know, we should, we, should ha- we should have a little plaque up there and say, in honor of Jehoash. But anyway, uh, really good. So he bore a hole in it so that they could stick the money in and put it beside the altar. Now, this is not the altar in the Holy of Holies. This is the altar outside in the courtyard where they burn sacrifices. And we'll... We actually find that bit of information from Second Chronicles of the same thing, but it happens to say, so the king commanded and they made a chest and set it outside by the gate of the house of the Lord. Um, so at this point, when it says Jehoiada did it, yes, he did, but he did it at the direction of Jehoash. You know, good for you, Jehoash. You know, you're 30 years old now and you've become your own man and you're doing what is right and you're putting the right priority and now you're coming up with Solomon-like ideas and how to solve it. Well, we go on from there and it says, it was put on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And again, this isn't a contradiction I think there the house of the Lord is just referring to the courtyard, the burnt offerings, and then moving into the the holies and the holy of holies. 
So I, I just think it's, it's encompassing all of it. It's not a contradiction. It says on the right side, as one comes into the house of the Lord and the priest who guarded the threshold put in it all the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. So the, the, the priests were still involved. They were taking the money from the people there in the courtyard and then they were the ones putting it in the box. So that's why I don't think that they were shysters and stealing. Um, th- here they were. They were carrying it out. And, they, and, and one of the things that we find from here, we'll see it a little later, there is just this incredible amount of trust. Everybody who gets involved in this, it seems as if there's no oversight and they do their job faithfully from the high priest to the priest to even the workers who repair the temple, which is, which, is, which is really neat, and it ought to be the way that churches are conducted. Now, we know that's not always the case, and that's sad, but there ought to be this idea of trust. Um, and yet at the same time, you, you do understand why ministries will sign up uh, their finances to be handled by a uh, Christian financial um, organization just so that they're on the up and up. Because we've seen so many other people go astray with, with uh, money. Well, we, we see then that this, this was made here and we see this collection. And really what we have here is a building fund. You know, you, you, you hear about that at church. It's a building fund. And, 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 what, and what do we have? And I think maybe we got this from Jehoash. There's a big picture of a thermometer. And the thermometer rises as the money is contributed. No. Uh, and, and, and we have to be careful of that because not all building funds are the best way to go. Um, you know, it, it could be that you, you can't be delinquent in other responsibilities for the sake of a building. Again, I think we're looking at, don't worry, God's work done in God's way will not lack God's provision. So we see that. But it, nevertheless, it could be called a building fund, and it's a, a faith collection, and the priests were responsible, and it was all going well. Verse 10 It says, when they saw that there was much money in the chest, you know, God was working then too, the king's scribe and the high priest, so that would be Jehoiada, these two men, trusted men, came up and they opened the bags or the box and they came up and tied it in bags and counted the money which was found in the house of the Lord. So here we have these two men. So probably that was a good idea. Probably that was a safeguard. Uh, you have two men uh, being accountable to each other. And you make sure there's no monetary mistakes as well. So we, we see this going on. They became treasurers. And guess what? Lo and behold, we have a treasurer in our church. Most churches do, and that's a good thing. We have by the way, we have Sally who does a fantastic job, and she's done it for a long time, and we hope that she outlives us all and keeps doing it. That's what we pray. Um, and, and so and anyway, you know, you know it, it's almost as if we see 
some of the precedents of the New Testament churches and what we do, and there is some biblical background to it. It's not like we just asked the banker and he told us what to do. I mean, there are spiritual guidelines of these things in the Bible. And then in verses 11 and 12, what the plan was and what they did was they were going to hire people to do the work. And you, you see a lot of volunteers in churches that do the work. Praise the Lord for you volunteers. But there does come a time when either the job is too big or the time is too little. And so you do um, hire out laborers. And, this, and, and the money was coming in. And the laborers were willing to do it and be paid. And so this is the way in which it was being carried out. Verse 11 says, they gave the money which was weighed out, which means it could be silver and gold, into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. So there were those who were in charge, almost like a supervisor, and who were they supervisors over? Well, he lists some of them. And they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, verse 12, and to the masons and the stonecutters. And they not only paid for that, but they paid for materials and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damages to the house of the Lord and for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. So they had a plan a plan on what needed to be repaired, how to repair it, and people who could do it, and they now had the funds to do it. So this is all working good. And again, we have the Lord's assessment that Jehoash, at least at this point, was doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. We do come to verse 13, where the question is going to be, okay, that's the if you will, the exterior and some of the interior of the temple. But what about all of the temple utensils and vessels? And verse 13 and 14 makes that out. Verse 13, but there were not made for the house of the Lord silver cups, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver from the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. In other words, what was done with the money was the first priority to establish and uh, repair all of the damage. As verse 14, for they gave that to those who did the work and with it they repaired the house of the Lord. But when we go to Second Chronicles again, it adds this little bit in verse 14 of Second Chronicles 24. It says, when they had finished, that is the external things, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. It was made into utensils for the house of the Lord, utensils for the service and the burnt offerings and pans and utensils of gold and silver. So we, we see that this is getting done and it's getting done completely and even the, um, the provisions for this uh, is just a blessing. And, and I believe when you see that, I believe that the Lord is involved. I'm not saying uh, name it and claim it. I'm not saying, you know, health and wealth. I'm not saying that. 
But you know, one of the things that the elders, we elders remarked about and were blessed, we didn't know what was going to happen when COVID shut us down there for a few months. And yet there were people um, asking how they could give. They were sending their money in. And so you, you see people faithful. That is a sign of the heart. Uh, and they were doing that. And, and it, what a blessing it is. So it doesn't mean that we're better than any other churches. It doesn't mean that we believe in health and wealth. It just means that God's people are a blessing in regard to giving, and they do it from the heart. Well, verse 15, and we're only going to go to verse 16. Verse 15 says, Moreover, they did not require an accounting from the men into whose hand they gave the money to pay to those who did the work, for they dealt faithfully. Wow. You know, that is a revival. I mean, I mean, if that would happen in our day and age, that would be a revival. Um, we, we do praise the Lord for Christian construction workers and see that who deal fail, fairly. And we like to deal in, with them. You, we all do personally. Automobile mechanics who are Christians, we, we like to help them out. And we believe that for the most part, they are dealing faithfully with us. And they, they are. Well, that's what was happening here. And uh, it's, it's a tremendous blessing. And then it says in verse 16, the money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was for the priests. The whole thing got straightened out. So now they could pay for the repairs and they could still provide for the priests through these offerings, through these other offerings. And this was a tremendous blessing. And Second Chronicles 24, 14, I only read half of it. I want to read the last sentence in that. It said, and they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. So what a blessing and what an influence Jehoiada was. And as long as he was there and influencing Jehoash, they were being blessed by the Lord because they were doing the Lord's will. So this is really good, but, but it, it now... It's going to cause us to wonder what we're going to talk about next week. What happened after Jehoiada died? Well, we'll pick that up and take a look at that. Well, just with the small amount of time we have remaining, I just want to give a brief, certainly not exhaustive, explanation of the Old Testament tithe under the law and New Testament giving. Uh, first thing I want to say is, by the way, when we think of tithe, tithe means 10%. But did you know that their tithes were more than 10%? And it totaled about 23% annually. Um, Leviticus 27, 30 through 32 is the only mention of the tithe or 10% in Leviticus. However, along with this offering, there were two other Old Testament tithes which totaled about 23% annually. Uh, 
The second tithe was in Deuteronomy 14, 22. And the third tithe every three years, the other one being every year, was uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28, and various others. So that was the idea of a tithe. So, we, so sometimes as a Christian, we, we uh, model ourselves and say that we want to tithe. And I remember asking my former pastor, you know, about that. And he said, well, it's a good place to start <laughs> if you're trying to figure it out. Um, so again, just to remind us, so they had tithes. And then they had these three different types of offerings that we just saw in 2 Kings. And so a lot of money was being given to the Lord and the Lord's work. That is not a bad thing. Just in case anybody was not aware of that, it is not a bad thing. Now, um, I will say this. We are not under the law. We're under grace. So it means that we're not bound to tithe. And if we don't tithe then all of our crops will die. It doesn't mean that. But again, I think you say, well, can we tithe? Yes, if it comes from the heart. And how much? Well, or, or how much should I give? Well, if you're just going to start thinking about it, tithe is a good place to start. But we're not under the compulsion of the law. What we are under are the principles of grace. And that's what are demonstrated in the New Testament. The principles in the New Testament are for those under grace and not the law. This is not to say that Christians are not to give at least the tithe, but Christians are under grace principles of giving, which also could lead to more than a tithe. What I'd like to do is I'd like to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And this is one of the passages that Paul talks about New Testament giving and giving under the grace uh, uh, system and, and not at all putting them back under the law to, to say anything about the tithe. And what we find out here, this the context here is, all the churches are giving, and Corinthians, for as many problems as they had, they were good givers. But Paul, Paul is now writing because they're going to come by Corinth, and he's told everybody about Corinth and their giving, and it has influenced some of the churches to give. And, and of course, what are they giving to? Well, on the one hand, they were giving to the poverty and that was caused by the famine around that time. And so Paul, not only a missionary, but he was distributing the funds to the necessity of the saints. We also find out that part of the reason of these churches giving was to give toward the work of ministry for Paul, for missionaries. By the way, we do that. And so he says this, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. In other words, of all people, I shouldn't have to write to you. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So let me give you a couple of principles that I see here. The first principle of grace giving or New Testament giving is that giving is a testimony. It is. Number one, yes, influence that other church. It can influence other believers. 
but it, it shows a healthy love for the Lord. It says in Proverbs to, that, that uh, you are to, to give of the Lord the first fruits of your produce. And when I was studying that, I realized there is a cord that is connected from your wallet to your heart. And this is not a plea for money. I'm I'm not a supporter of the gospel half hour. This is not a plea for money. But this is just scripture saying, you know what? The Lord knows where your heart is by your giving. That's probably convicting for all of us. But it, it is a testimony. It's a testimony that you're living for the Lord. And it's a testimony to others. And what we're going to find out there in the New Testament, there is this excitement about the ministry of giving. All right. Next we have, um, hold on a second here. Okay, next we have um, verses three through five. And then we have a principle, but verses three through five, he's going to explain some things. He says, but I've sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. That is kind of interesting. That is, that is real life stuff, isn't it? Look, I've been telling these guys how great you are, and just to make sure nobody's going to have egg on their face, I'm letting you know we're coming again, and we're asking you to prepare. Verse 4, otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Very interesting that he does that. I mean, I I wouldn't have necessarily thought about that. And perhaps we would have thought, well, maybe that's not the best thing here. But Paul, an apostle of the Lord, is doing the right thing here. He said in verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. Okay, so now there was a, like in the Old Testament, a personal vow, which had to be fulfilled under the law. But here he's being gracious and he's saying, look, you you promised and they all heard about it. And just, just so none of us have egg on the face, I'm letting you know that, that, that they're coming, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. So we, we see this part of this testimony. It's part of the testimony uh, principle there. We come, to, we come to verse 6, and he says this. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, this was not you have to tithe under the law. But this was a principle that, look, giving is a blessing. That's the second principle. Giving is a blessing. And because it's a blessing, the more you give, the more you are blessed. Now, I want to be careful because I know that there are TV preachers out there saying, if you give to the Lord... He'll give you threefold back. Well, you know what? You know what a carnal Christian is going to say? Hey, that sounds like a good business deal. 
And the only person that's getting threefold is that TV preacher. That person is not getting threefold because there's no such principle like that. Paul just says, look, it's a blessing. And if you give sparingly, you'll have a, a little, little bit of a blessing. But if you give a lot, a bountiful gift, you'll have a bountiful blessing. That's what he's saying there. And so um, that's the second part. Giving is a blessing. And we're, and we're seeing a whole different picture of New Testament giving. Thirdly, giving is of the heart. If you look at verse um, 7, notice there's a couple of components here and a couple of principles here. Giving is of the heart. That's what it was in the Old Testament. That's what it should have been in the Old Testament, even though there was that uh, command by the law. For believers, there's no command from the Lord. We're not under the law system. We're under the law of grace, which could be even more than what the Old Testament uh, gave. It says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. So again, this could be referring to maybe a whole bunch of them had made a commitment that they're going to pay. Or it could be that, you know, someone was really ministered to and realized people in Jerusalem are really struggling and we've got to help these brothers out. So whatever you purposed in your heart, that's what you're to do. There's, there was no amount of money at this point. In fact, at any point in the New Testament, there's no amount of money telling us how much must be given. But it was the heart before the Lord. So that is the idea. And again, we do see several scriptures in the Old Testament that also talked about free will offerings. So it's not as if God was just concerned with externals. The next principle is, and it's coming out more and more, giving is to be joyous. So it's not only a testimony, it's not only a blessing, it not only comes from the heart, but it is to be joyous. If it's a blessing and it's a bountiful blessing, there's going to be joy. Um, and by, by the way, what I'm thinking about is, you know, uh, if you have ever kind of put some money aside and said, I'm going to pray about who to give this to, and you watch for the needs in the church, and then you give it to them, and even giving it to them anonymously can be a blessing. I know we did that when our, when our kids were young, and we said, all right, let's do this. Let's put some money aside, and let's all pray about who has need and who we should give it to. And then when we discussed it together we, we we thought about well what about this person what about that person and then we gave it and we sat back and we watched the blessing of it and so it was joyous look at verse seven then it says not grudgingly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver so if it's from the heart it's not to be grudging you don't you know you don't mumble you know as the the plate is passed around. You got to be kidding me. Twice, twice on one Sunday, you got to be kidding me. You know what? Uh, you know, and, and again, I'm not appealing for more money. I'm just appealing for our attitude. Uh, so it shouldn't be that way. But look at what it says. It says, not only are we blessed, but God loves a cheerful giver. And I think it's better a joyful giver. I think the word cheerful in the Greek, is much more emphatic than the English word cheerful. 
you know, cheered me up today. No, it's right. The Greek word for cheerful in the Greek is hilaros. And we get our English word hilarious from it. So, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen a hilarious giver, and it probably is toned down a little bit for a joyous giver, but this is what God wants, that we uh, hilariously give uh, because it's such a joy to meet the needs. Why is it such a joy? Because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross. Yes, there can be a little bit of sacrifice involved in this. Um, yes, it could be maybe there's some things that we don't get to do right away. But there is this joy, this blessing, and the idea of a hilarious or joyful giver. All right, well, let's turn now to first, and we could keep reading on. We could go back to chapter 2. But for the sake of time, and I'm way over, uh, let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I'm just going to keep on preaching tonight until those gifts and honorariums come in. So if you don't want to be here all night, get that plate, start passing it around. Just kidding. Couldn't help that. In 1 Corinthians 16, we also have um, Paul's advice and instruction. And it's in 1 Corinthians, which was before 2 Corinthians, And one of the things we find out is we find out why we indeed meet on Sunday and not on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. We find that because he's talking about the collection. It says, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Verse 2, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Notice verse 2, where it says on the first day of the... Why that day? Because that's the day that the Christian church was meeting. It wasn't meeting on the Sabbath. And there's also this idea of moving away from the law and now under grace. By the way, the first day of the week is the day that our Lord was raised from the dead. So uh, all of this contributes to why we're not worshiping on the sabbath that was under the old testament we're under grace in the new testament now as far as a collection goes it's for the saints this is for the necessity of the saints and he said each one of you is to put aside and save and i think this would also entail and then the first day of the week you you give it when you come to worship but notice what he says here as he may prosper. There is no amount of money here, but it's as he may prosper. And the idea is, is when there is an abundance, praise the Lord. But we should also be thinking of giving to the Lord with that abundance. Um, We could say that giving is to be regular. We could call this the principle that giving is to be regular. Um, So every, every Every time we come to church, and hopefully that's once a week, we should be giving. And then you would also, you have the principle that giving is based on free will and abundance. So maybe we will put Grace Bible Free Will Church. And that means that the giving is free will. 
I, I remember one time that we were invited to a church, particular kind of a funny, strange doctrine, and they would not let us take communion uh, because we weren't members and we didn't ascribe to their beliefs. Um, but then it came time for the collection, and I really felt like, I don't think so. I mean, come on, what, you're good and I'm good enough to give you money, but I'm not good enough to take the Lord's table. Um, I don't even remember what actually. Did we give? Did we act? We did. Okay, there you go. So we did the right thing, I suppose. Well, it's, it's free will. John MacArthur writes, No required amount or percentage for giving to the Lord's work is specified in the New Testament. All giving to the Lord is to be free will giving and completely discretionary. This is not to be confused with the Old Testament required giving of three tithes, which totaled about 23% annually to fund the national government of Israel, take care of public festivals, and provide welfare. Modern parallels to the Old Testament tithe are found in the taxation system of countries. Old Testament giving to God was not always regulated as to the amount, but also upon the heart. And that's what we have in the New Testament. So I'm going to stop there um, just to say, you know what? Jehoash did it right and was given the approval of someone who was right and did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So we'll return to this next week.